0: Hello, I'm Dapper Dan Gavonston, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, which definitely count.
1: And I'm mischievous Mark Chinacchio, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, but the annuals don't count. Well, thanks,
0: everybody, for joining us for our ninth episode of season five of The Amazing Spider-Talk, the show where two fans and collectors uncover the strange, fun Fascinating and dramatic history of the Spider Man comic universe, and it has been especially dramatic on this show after our last episode about the hobgoblin.
1: Absolutely, Dan. Drama, drama, drama. If you want to swing along with us on our journey through Spidey's past, present, and future, subscribe to Amazing Spider Talk on your favorite podcast app. Every other week, we put out a mainline episode of our flagship show. And sprinkled in between, we review new comics as well as interview some of the greatest Spider-Man creators of yesterday and today. This is the perfect time to start listening.
0: I will say, though, Mark, it's not absolutely the most perfect because on our Apple Podcasts app, not every one of our episodes is available anymore. So as I've been saying, if you want to listen to our full catalog, you're going to have to go to AmazingSpiderTalk.com where we have all of our superior Spider-Man episodes available and the beginning of Amazing Spider-Talk there. We can only have up to 300 episodes on Apple we've surpassed that now. So if you're one of those people that is a completionist, you know, boom, like let, go over to amazingspidertalk.com. There you go. You can you can get all of the episodes that we've ever done of the show.
1: Dan, you you and I know nothing about completionists, right? (laughs) (laughs) Consider every episode
0: that's not in our Apple podcast feed an amazing fantasy 15 of our collection in that we will never own it. Or or an annual, Dan. (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. Oh. Oh, no. Let's get to today's episode. In this season of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk, we're going back to the mid-80s when comics were changing, embracing new visual styles, aging up with their audience, and ditching formulas that had defined serialized superhero comics for decades. In the previous episode, which would be hard to forget, it was one of our favorites we've ever done, we've discussed the drama behind the bungled initial reveal of the Hobgoblin's identity. Mark, I said initial reveal of the Hobgoblin's identity.
1: (laughs) That's right. Every story needs a good ending, Dan, and not content to let Ned Leeds be blamed for the crimes of the Hobgoblin. Writer Roger Stern came back almost a decade later to right the wrongs of his predecessors. That's right. We're not in the 80s anymore, Dan. We're actually going to be in the 90s (laughs) today. Stern teamed up with Ron Friends, the person who was part of the 80s (laughs) Hobgoblin (laughs) storyline, to release Hobgoblin Lives, a miniseries, to finally give the character the ending he had long planned since the very beginning when he first introduced him in Amazing Spider-Man 238.
0: This is it. It's all coming full circle. So if you want to follow along with us through our journey through the second Hobgoblin identity reveal. I mean, how many people get a second identity reveal? (laughs) If you even want to call that, I think we've had a half dozen identity reveals for the Hobgoblin um, on this show and in the comics. We're going to be discussing specifically today the events of Hobgoblin Lives, numbers one through three. And the shortly followed-up story of Goblins at the Gate, which ran in Spectacular Spider-Man, numbers 259 to 261. Also, kind of finishing up our Roger Stern Hobgoblin stories, you know, And we'll discuss some of the stuff that the Hobgoblin has done since then. But since this is our Roger Stern season, that's really where most of his influence on the character concluded in that issue 261 of Spectacular Spider-Man.
1: Absolutely, Dan. But before we get into Stern writing the wrongs, why don't we talk a little bit about where the Hobgoblin was after the end of where we... Ended our last episode Which was Amazing Spider-Man 289
0: I think it's no Guess to say that I think General consensus was that this Reveal was kind of I don't know if a failure is too strong of a word But a big mess And if you've been following for all the years That it had been going on You know, I think there's no way That you got to this point and really felt All that satisfied uh, About it. You know, Jim Salakrup, The editor at the time Agreed, and he decided, man, it's time to bury the Hobgoblin for a little bit of time, and I, that's kind of what he did
1: yeah so so the hobgoblin was kind of put on the back burner but you know all the same jason massendale aka the jack-o'-lantern had assumed the mantle of the hobgoblin in amazing spider-man number 289 and then thereafter in the wake of ned Leeds' death you know with the character on ice for a bit he did finally get pushed forward again uh in amazing spider-man number 312 which you know one of the many iconic Todd McFarlane covers of the era, which was like the <laughs> uh, the Hobgoblin versus the, the Harry Osborn Green Goblin. But it was also part of the Inferno crossover. And what what happened to Massendale's Hobgoblin during Inferno, Dan?
0: I mean, the Inferno crossover is really strange. Like <laughs> MJ's gold necklace comes to life and tries to <laughs> strangle her to death. And I'll admit, I've never been a huge fan of uh, McFarland's Goblin renditions, although they're very Dicko-esque in their, in their kind of strange design. You know, the Inferno crossover saw all these like, kind of demons coming to Earth and taking over. And in, you know, issue 312 of Amazing Spider-Man, Hobgoblin and the Green Goblin finally, like, fight each other. Although it's Harry Osborn as the Green Goblin acting almost like a hero there the hobgoblin loses because it's jason massendale and he doesn't have the power of the green goblin he's never taken that serum so he's desperate for the serum so in spectacular issue 147 you get the scene where massendale approaches one of the like lead demons of this invasion of earth begging him for power and offering his soul to him. And the demon kind of laughs it off. He's like, have you seen the state of your soul recently? It's not (laughs) great, you know, and then kind of curses him, um, which I guess gives him kind of what he wants, but he becomes in that issue. It's not named, but he, he becomes the demo goblin. He kind of becomes like a goblin, right? Like uh, he's a demon. He's got these cursed reptile eyes and snake like tongue. And he's all kinds of creepy. I think this character is kind of best known For his involvement in Maximum Carnage And his kind of team up with like
1: The Doppelganger
0: all, The Doppelganger Spider-Man So, you know, that's probably his claim to fame But yeah, I mean, for a while there The Hobgoblin was replaced by The Demo Goblin Which then became its own thing Separate from the Hobgoblin And it's a whole twisted thing I'm sure we'll get into in a later season Right Yeah um, <laughs> When we do a bad guys report. Yeah, the Demo Goblin, Spectacular Spider Man 147.
1: Yeah, you're just previewing our 90s villains uh, episodes, Dan, which are going (laughs) to be like really lit. Uh, Oh my God. I (laughs) can't I'm going to need need extra beers for those episodes. Eventually, Massendale would uh, reassume his human form, although he had like cybernetic features. (laughs) Because, you know, comic books, everybody, you know, this is where we're at. And that kind of brings us into the mid-90s when Roger Stern apparently was kicking around an idea he had in the back offices. I mean, Stern had left Marvel for a period. He was actually writing Superman. He worked a lot on the uh, Death and Return of Superman arc in the 90s for the Distinguished Competition. This was one of the storylines that was going to bring Stern back to Marvel. And and what, what was Stern kind of pitching about, Dan?
0: You know, he was hung up on this storyline you know, it was a really personal one to him that he wanted to see through to fruition, even if he left to go do Avengers. He, you know, his thing was that, like, it still seemed incredibly out of character to him for Ned Leeds to be the Hobgoblin, which, like, fair enough, Stern. We agree. It is out of character for Ned Leeds to to be the Hobgoblin. His whole thing was like, look, the Hobgoblin was a killer, and he didn't think that Ned Leeds was a killer. And also, you know, if Ned Leeds was the Hobgoblin... How could someone with his super strength get turfed by the foreigners men so easily? He just like thought it was a cold case waiting to be solved. Like, like, and, and he would be the guy to do it because of course he invented the character. Uh, so why not? He would bring up these points when he did his occasional interviews. I mean, <laughs> we're, we're case in point that Stern doesn't do a lot of interviews because we can't get him on our show. He would pitch this idea around casually and even to Marvel. So how did Marvel respond to this idea that he had been throwing around?
1: Marvel, for the most part, was kind of cool to it. I mean, they were like, you know, why are we going to revisit this? I mean, this is a story now. I mean, at this point, was nearly 10 years old. You know, yes, Stern had his personal connection to it, but, like, you know, did the average fan truly care at this point? You know, like, you know, not only was... You know, Ned Leeds dead, but, you know, we had the new Hobgoblin who had demonic powers and was hanging out with Carnage and Shriek and, you know, far more marketable characters. I mean, like, you know, why, why are we going back to this? But, you know... 1996 was kind of a, a strange time for Marvel all around. There were financial issues. There was, you know, in terms of the Spider office, we were kind of coming out of the clone saga and and trying to kind of rebuild the brand of Spider-Man a little bit. And, you know, one of the things that, that Marvel was doing to that end was they really wanted to kind of go back in time and, and mine like the glory days of Spider-Man. And, and the, and the best way that they did that was actually through the untold tales of Spider-Man series it was um, the kind of the brainchild of Kurt Busiak and Tom Brevoort, who was the editor of uh, untold tales in that context, you know, with, with Stern kind of still pitching this idea, Brevoort was like, you know, okay, we're doing untold tales and, and, you know, maybe, maybe the time is right to do something like this. And one of the other editor slash writers who was kicking around the Spider books at that point was Glenn Greenberg. He was all about it. Like his his general attitude was like, "Hey, man, like w- we get to do a good story, and we get Roger Stern back on Spider Man. You know, if it sells, it sells. But like this is this is a great idea." So so Greenberg kind of took over as the creative force from an editorial perspective behind it. While Brevoort kind of took a back seat. And what happened from there, Dan?
0: you know the the big thing was they needed to run it up the chain to see if they could get it approved and so the, that up the chain for them meant talking to editor Ralph Macchio, not the guy from the karate kid It's a separate guy. It's not that Ralph Macchio, but they refer um, to him
1: as the karate kid. <laughs> that, yeah, that was, I mean, nickname. look, they would try to
0: blur those lines as much as possible. But if there's another person in pop culture named Ralph Macchio. Who's not the actor,
1: but he was a high up editor at, at Marvel. I believe even EIC at one point, The 90s were a wacky time, Dan. So that might have been the case, but he definitely oversaw the spy. And he he was also the main editor on the Ultimate Books when they started, right? He was. Yeah, Yeah.
0: absolutely. So, you know, they needed to run it up the chain. And because the thing was that, like, Ralph Macchio had introduced this new Hobgoblin recently in the comics. And so, you know, Glenn Greenberg wanted to find out, like, hey, like, if if I go out to Stern and he wants to kill off that hobgoblin to do his real hobgoblin story, like I don't want to piss off Ralph Macchio. So he ran it up the chain and said like, Hey, look, if, if, if this means killing off your new hobgoblin, are you okay with that? And he, and he said, well, the new hobgoblin isn't working anyway. So I, I'm, I'm cool with it. But he had a few stipulations that he wanted in the story Before he could green light it So first of all, Machio said he wouldn't sign off on the story Unless he knew who the Hobgoblin is And how Stern planned to get to the reveal Uh, Which is funny because that's kind of the long-standing request of all these editors This was going to be it, right? Like they they were going to nail this thing to the board or whatever Like they had to know where this was going And it had to be something Ralph Machio could sign off on And ultimately, he agreed, you know, with who it would be, Roderick Kingsley, and the way it would get there. And anybody who's read the story knows that it's done very artfully. But the one thing he insisted, and I think this is actually really great that he insisted this because it brings a lot of heart to the story that I imagine, you know, someone as talented as Stern would probably have seized upon. Macchio insisted that it had to be a big story for Betty Brant because it was going to exonerate Ned leads her ex-husband and he saw it as a real opportunity to make that character kind of refresh that character a little bit and give her a big moment. Not that she deserved it. Betty <laughs> Brand is an awful person. I well, mean, here she
1: does kind of redeem herself a little bit. She She's an awful person because she was written awfully, Dan. <laughs> I mean, it's, true. Was... <laughs> it's true. It's true.
0: It's um, true. Well, here she's written not awfully. I, I think that was Machio's contribution and, uh, you know, re- really, really uh, appreciate it.
1: Dan, before we go any further, I think for the first time in the history of The Amazing Spider Talk, I have an appropriate opening to do my Ralph Macchio uh, imitation from Karate Kid 3. Oh, uh, boy. Not, not, so let me just get it out there. Mr. Uh, you know because he's he's 30 something years old playing a 17 year old anyway I digress
0: how, how, how many years has it been since we've revisited that inside joke on I, show? I
1: don't know Dan but here we are um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Cobra Kai is like in the zeitgeist now so like people are probably listening to me like wow why are you being mean to Ralph Macchio the Karate Kid Mark anyway just go back and watch Karate Kid 3 it doesn't age well no matter how well they use the characters in Cobra Kai anyway producers call Mark for his impression. He needs to be hired. There this. we go. There we go. There was I don't want to call it a condition, but you know, in terms of like one last piece to get, last piece of the puzzle for this hobgoblin story was, of course, the the artist and Greenberg actually was really pushing to get John Romita Jr. to come back, but that that was not going to happen. I guess Jr. Jr. had some other projects going on, or or you know, I mean, like I mean, I he believe
0: was, he was working for DC at the time, if I'm not correct.
1: I thought that he didn't go to DC until only a few years ago but whatever i'm sure i mean JRJR JR in the 90s was doing everything you know what i mean like and and he he was not on the table at the time so greenberg recruited ron friends and and dan you asked ron about this when you first interviewed him way back in the day in terms of one of those episodes that you probably cannot find in our podcast feed right now because it's from the superior era but what it, what was ron's impression at the time
0: I mean, Ron has long said that he was skeptical of the idea of the of the twins, right, yes, or yes. the non twin twins, yeah, right,
1: right. And I, I believe his skepti- quote is, "Come on, Roger." <laughs> <laughs>
0: I mean, he was skeptical at all. I think even just revisiting the Hobgoblin, because for him it be, had been put to rest. And you got to imagine it was kind of a painful chapter in in Ron's you know career as an artist, in, in the regard that like. Bickering over this thing was ultimately, I think, what got him and Tom booted from the book. And I'm not blaming Ron in any way. I don't think it was his fault at all. But, you know, Glenn Greenberg was really stubborn about it and eventually convinced Ron that he was the right guy for the book. Ron, Ron joked when he was on the show that, like, he felt like a, a bad replacement for, for J.R.J.R. in that J.R.J.R. is who he is but i mean ron friends is who he is and he's a legend as much as he would claim otherwise and i think he's a perfect fit for this book and glenn B- greenberg was so convinced of this he said if he if ron friends wasn't going to be on the book after jrjr wasn't available that he would walk himself from the project which is a lot of conviction and you know like i think it was a worthwhile uh, suggestion because uh, the, i think the book we got is really beautiful looking
1: That book is da 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 da. Hobgoblin lives. It's a three-part miniseries. So it was scripted by Stern with art by friends, and plus a variety of anchors, including George Perez. Who was this Perez's first Spider-Man book? It might have been. I mean, like, I mean, you know, obviously Perez is a is a is a legend himself. (laughs) Um, uh, And other uh, uh, anchors included Scott Hanna, Bob McLeod, Jerome Moore. I mean, guys that have been you know around the Spidey circuit for sure.
0: Yeah, this is George Perez's, like, one of his few works on Spider-Man, and he only does the first issue, but it really stands out. I mean, I don't think I've ever seen Ron Friends inked in this way, and it, it's, a, it's a really interesting look for the book, which we can talk about later, but, I mean, it, it is a little weird that this the inking is so inconsistent on this chapter, but you get really three distinct interpretations of Ron Friends' pencils, and at least in a modern context, I'm used to seeing Ron Frenz's pencils inked by Sal Buscema. And, you know, seeing them done this way, it's kind of a reminder of, like, how much a person's pencils can be stretched and and how, like, you know, I, honestly, I think this is some of the most modern-looking work that Ron Frenz has done. I mean,
1: it's pretty, it's really strong stuff. And, of course, the book also had a checklist at the start to kind of get newcomers all caught up with all of the previous drama. I mean, you know, couldn't they have just listened to Amazing Spider-Talk at the time, Dan? I mean, you know, that that would have gotten them all the way caught up, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll be honest, like, you know, these checklists at the beginning of the book were kind of what got me so obsessed with the Hobgoblin story, you know, because, like, I didn't live through this, but then seeing that these Hobgoblins lives issues, like, really just pulled from... All these different places showcased to me early on, like just the web of, of information that we were dealing with here. I kind of like this, like as the sort of like pseudo editors notes, but like before the issues start, I, I love this kind of thing. And I feel like there's a welcome place for this. You know, I just think back to this era in the 90s where they were like the, the character portraits on the inside cover. It was a really distinct time for, for, for opening pages.
1: Could you imagine opening up an issue of Sinister War and seeing the checklist being like, <laughs> The Osborne Journals! <laughs> <laughs> Sin's Past? <laughs> like, wait, what? What am I about to read? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. no kidding. Man, The
0: Osborne Journals. I haven't revisited those in forever. <laughs>
1: the Legacy of Evil. You know, as we mentioned, of course, you know, in addition to redeeming Ed Leeds, Stern was also going to use the book to kind of redeem Betty Brant's character, or, or, you know, to Dan's, Dan's opinion. I don't know if we, she's redeemed, but she's she's less awful here. You know, I also thought it was interesting. Like in the very first issue, one of the one of the big plot points was that. The returning Hobgoblin kills off Massendale. So we take him off the board and we kind of know from this point on, like, all right, we're going to get a truly new Hobgoblin here. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to get faked out and it's going to be Massendale. So I thought that was a pretty significant move to really prove like this was going to be a definitive story here.
0: It's great, too. I mean, because like Massendale, you know, mouths off to the press in order to like delay his time in court where he's going to get like the death sentence or whatever equivalent in the Marvel universe that he was never the Hobgoblin you know until later on and it's like it's a great way to reintroduce this kind of mystery back into the universe like what why would he have kept the secret for lo- so long well he was you know holding on to it to use it at this time and i just think it's really clever scripting from stern which goes without saying i think it's very massendale and to see him taken out this way is is perfect, too. Uh, I love Massendale as a villain. I know he's not like a great replacement for the Hobgoblin, but he's got some like real verve to him that I really enjoy.
1: Yeah, I, I, I can see that for sure. Of course, the other big thing that came from this series was, you know, the mechanics of you know, how were they going to explain away that Ned Leeds was not the Hobgoblin? I mean, this would become a core part of the character's biography going forward, which was that What Stern was actually trying to demonstrate here was that the Hobgoblin, the real Hobgoblin, brainwashed Ned Leeds into believing he was the Hobgoblin, you know, until basically he no longer had any use for him. You know, what Stern had said in retrospect that was kind of the precedent for this was, you know, go all the way back to what was an amazing Spider-Man 246, 247, one of those issues there, when Lefty Donovan is... Uh, Initially revealed to be the hobgoblin, and then of course, that's not the case. And it it was because you know the hobgoblin kind of tricked Lefty into believing that he was the character. So, like, you know, we're we're immediately going back to actual content that Stern had scripted back in the 80s to kind of demonstrate what this like little mechanical Dois Machina was going to be. Uh, and and it was. Pretty effective in that regard, right, Dan? I mean, you know, yes, we 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 don't always love today how it's kind of like fake out upon fake out, but and we can get to that a little later. But like at the time it was like, oh, okay, there's there's a precedent here for brainwashing and we we saw it. So good for Stern for calling it back.
0: <laughs> I always love the scene where like Spider-Man kind of comes to the realization that like the pieces have been sitting there in front of him the whole time it's this kind of intimate scene with him and Mary Jane in the bedroom and they're embracing. And she's like, well, wait, like if he hadn't taken, if he had taken the goblin serum, wouldn't he have been able to like make mincemeat of, you know, uh, the foreigners goons. And it's, it's just a great moment. And Peter has this almost like flashes before his eyes of, wait a minute. You're right. None of this does make sense. And, It's a, it's a great example of like, I think like Spider-Man being smart and, you know, thinking about his rogues gallery, but also like how you can use Mary Jane to play off of him in an interesting way. I just always liked the way that this scene was handled. You know, it's, it's one of those like, Hey, you all accepted this for a decade, but really it was all right there in front of you. How come you didn't see this, this grievous error that is both shared between Peter and the audience. It's a favorite of mine.
1: Now, of course, you know, the other thing that this story does is it brings back Roderick Kingsley, who I'm, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, but I think like the last time we saw him, we talked about this in our last episode, he he got shot, right? I mean, it was I mean, this is really the first appearance of Roderick in over 10 years. And, you know, you can, you know, like, yes, it's easy for us to kind of piece this all together. But I would have to imagine if you were reading this in real time, you'd be like, wait, why the hell is this guy being brought back? He's clearly part of it, (laughs) right? I mean, like, you know, and yes, of course, Roderick Kingsley was Stern's creation from the get-go, going back to the, you know, his first run on Spectacular in the early 80s, but uh, still, like, you know, if, if you're not getting like bells and whistles and alarms from Roderick showing up, you, you, you're you not paying attention. But of course, you know, we, we we try and get the fake out here from Stern and showing Roderick interacting with a masked hobgoblin. So it's kind of like, OK, what what's, what's that about? If he's the hobgoblin, how is he talking to the actual hobgoblin? I mean,
0: it's still the same fake out as it was before, which is like Roderick is portrayed as the weapons dealer for the hobgoblin, you know. I mean, obviously, looking back on it, like, all that stuff is probably Daniel Kingsley wearing a toupee, uh, which we'll get to. But, yeah, I mean, he's still continuing that. I mean, the no prize there, if it's not going to be a Roderick in the story, like, it, it's, I don't think it's quite the instance of, like, Scooby-Doo, where, of course, you only meet one other character. So, of course, he's going to be the ghost. Like, of course, it's the old man. He's the only person we've met. Like, I, I don't think that's quite true he, as true here. But yeah, I mean, Roderick coming back out of like after but over seven years away it is a bit of a red flag.
1: As you mentioned, the reveal is eventually made and it is while the Hobgoblin is out carousing Roderick's not twin, but very similar looking brother. Daniel is kind of posing as Roderick with the help of a, of a hairpiece. You know, Roderick is eventually apprehended as the as the Hobgoblin and put in jail, and we never hear from him again, right? I mean, that's it. It's all over the end of the Hobgoblin. Stern did it.
0: <laughs> we got him!
1: <laughs> and, and,
0: and, and going back to even our first discussion of Roger Stern at the end of our previous season, where we talked about, you know, the introduction of Roderick Kingsley. I think this reveal ultimately suggests, too, that the the difference in the characterization for that character, I think we talked about him as being kind of like a poorly written gay stereotype, you know, in those stories, which I, I don't necessarily love that characterization, but I think, like, this story also seems to imply that that was Daniel as well, you know, with Roderick kind of manipulating things behind the scenes. You can trace this almost as far back as, like, Stern spectacular Spider-Man run, if you really want to.
1: With Roderick behind bars, what what did you think about the actual execution of Hoggoblin Libs?
0: I mean, I think it's brilliant. I I I think this book is so cleverly written because it'd be it'd be very easy for this thing to just kind of be like another chapter in it that feels like a book out of time. Like let's flashback or or the opposite, right? A book that's happening now, but you don't really care about it because you've long since forgotten those events and it was put to rest. But I really think that this is kind of a thrilling conclusion to this story. It 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 makes it like pertinent to Spider-Man now, like which means Stern have been keeping up and made it very contemporary. But I think it manages to take the threat of the hobgoblin and Make it not feel like something that we're just drudging up from yesteryear. It feels, you know, very modern. And and not only that, but like he does. There's no T that's not crossed or I that's not dotted. I mean, he dodges and weaves through every bizarre complication that this story took that we detailed in our last episode. Even those crazy Jim Owsley web of Spider-Man stories are explained here in a way that doesn't feel like a crazy exposition dump. It's just masterfully done. And I think this book could have failed any number of ways, and it doesn't. It succeeds in every number of way, in my opinion. You know, whether that be the art team, the writing team, etc. I think this is the thing, at least for me, that redeems the character of the Hobgoblin. And I have to think that Stern felt a great pressure to do so. And, you know, put extra care into delivering on this one
1: friends exact words was like he did it. He really did it. And I agree with that. I mean, like he he Stern pulls this off here. I mean, you know, it also I mean, that's a that's a Monday morning quarterback. It, But frankly, that's that's all this is for 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 us when it comes to the hobgoblin. But like, you know, kind of it kind of demonstrates why maybe maybe doing these long drawn out storylines is not what's best for for the narrative sometimes like if you can just do a kind of neat and tidy multi-part arc that 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 brings it all up and and explains it away I mean like if stern basically did this in in 249 to 251 you know we would never have had the drama that was that pers- that followed his exit from the book you know what I mean like he could have just done this story and it would have been you know it would have been great you know, instead we we were kind of stuck with what we got. So it it does kind of like, you know, I don't know, to me kind of put forward the idea with with some of these creators that, you know, I know we like to play the long game with characters and with storylines, but maybe sometimes you just need a nice, condensed, concise story to to get your 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 mysteries out there because otherwise there's this too much possibility and potential for it to go off the rails as we saw with the hobgoblin
0: (laughs) i want to push back on that a little bit but i'm going to save it for later in the episode because i want to talk about our slack right now so mark why don't you tell our listeners about how they can get engaged with our slack
1: Absolutely. Well, hundreds of listeners like you hang out in our community of Spider Man fans on the Slack. The Amazing Spider Slack community is absolutely free to join, and you can jump into active conversations with awesome people about collecting, conventions, movies, new comics, old comics, and more.
0: Yeah, I'm there all the time. And this week, Mark, you know what? I've been picking fights with anyone who is 40 years old and thinks they know more about comics than me. If you hear me out there, everybody, come on into the Slack Fight Club. Let's go I'm ready to throw down You think you know Something about
1: Ned Leeds Let's do it I'm ready to go I mean as Dan As a, as a member of the 40, 40 club what, what What is about 40 year olds That you're fighting Against right now
0: <laughs> Oh I don't know these, these these You know Random 40 year olds Seem to be suggesting They know more about Comics than me In my local Comic book stores oh. And I'm just not Taking it Like, like age is just A number man But it doesn't mean You know everything About Ned Leeds I'm ready to throw down You step into my slack Let's go.
1: All right. All right. Dan is, Dan is throwing down the gauntlet. There we go.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So let that be an invitation to join our awesome Spider Man community. Just follow the link in the description and be sure to say hi. And once you're there, let me know where I can send the pain because I'm going to bring it, Mark. I'm going to bring it.
1: I mean, Dan, I've never heard such threatening words from anybody. From you saying I'm gonna bring the pain, like I just got shivers down my spine. I mean, I, I it looked like I was yawning on camera there, but it was shivers. That's what that was. That was me emitting <laughs> shivers.
0: <laughs> well, good, good. It, it, you should be intimidated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going
1: scorched earth here.
0: All right, all right. Let's get back to the conversation before I get too riled up.
1: All right. Um, Well, coming immediately on the heels of The Hobgoblin Lives, Dan, is Goblins at the Gate, as you had mentioned in our intro. So Goblins at the Gate was an arc to follow in Spectacular Spider-Man number 259 to 261. Greenberg and Roger Stern worked the scripts on that. The art was Luke Ross and Al Milgram. Of course, Ralph Macchio uh, or Macchio or Karate Kid, he's editing it. And basically, like this was kind of like uh, Greenberg wanting to... Now that the Hobgoblin world was set right, he was like, hey, we got the Hobgoblin and Norman Osborn is back in the Marvel universe you know after hanging out in Europe for 20 years he's 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 back and orchestrating the clone saga and doing stuff with Harry Osborn and and it's just a it's just a good old time for Norman so let's let's get a Hobgoblin versus Green Goblin proper storyline so this is this is the dream match what did you think about the dream match Dan
0: <laughs> I think it's okay Okay. <laughs> I think it's okay. I mean, this feels more like a I mean, it's funny cuz it's the en- technically the end of Roger Stern writing the Hobgoblin, but it really just feels kind of like a like something fun that they wanted to do, but I still don't ever feel like it really gets to be all that fun. Like it it's kind of mired in like 90s Green Goblin continuity, which which is neat. But it's like you never get that full like Norman Green Goblin craziness thing because he's still kind of putting up a front at the time. And so I don't feel like this story ever really lives up to the potential. I mean, Roger had mentioned to Glenn Greenberg when he was doing Hobgoblin Lives that like this was a dream project uh, of his. And like this thing kind of seemed to have fallen like into their lap because at the time Spectacular Spider-Man lost JMD as a writer. And so they needed a new writer. Ralph Macchio actually reached out to Glenn Greenberg and was like, we have to put solicits out to advertise upcoming books. Do you have any ideas? And this was just kind of something that like Glenn Greenberg, like called up Stern and was like, well, Hey, do you want to do this? Like we have three issues we need to fill in for. And so they just kind of wrote solicits up before they even had a story in mind. He went back to Macchio. Macchio was like, yeah, let's do it. And so you get this story kind of I wouldn't say cobbled together But it's just a three issue kind of Fun tale sandwiched in between While the spider office figured out What to do You know in, in the wake of uh, of JMD's departure So I don't know to me it feels kind of like Of that nature which is not like This is not a story that anybody Had like been thinking about for a long time It's a fun matchup Between these characters that Stern And Gle- Greenberg thought they could have a good time with
1: yeah. And the general premise is that Kingsley is in jail, kind of, you know, stewing away about being caught. And he sees Norman Osborne out there, like, as you mentioned, you know, putting up this front that he, he was never the Green Goblin and he's a legitimate businessman. And Kingsley is is basically like itching to, to rat out Norman since, you know, obviously he got all of his tech from from Norman's lair back in the day. Kingsley reaches out to the DA to be like, hey, let's cut a deal. I can give you who, you know, proof that Norman Osborne is the Green Goblin for, you know, in exchange for a lesser sentence here. And of course, uh, Osborne ever, ever the opportunist does not go for that. Instead, he's like, no, no. And he actually breaks Kingsley out <laughs> to, to threaten him, I guess. I mean, you know, it's kind of like, oh, OK. I mean, this is how we're going to make this happen. I mean, it's a little a little mechanically off,
0: you know. And I mean, it's if- important to note that he breaks him out via like an alternate Green Goblin. Uh, he like hires someone or at the time, at least we suspect that he hired someone to dress up as the Green Goblin so that he can appear alongside him and prove definitively that he's not the Green Goblin.
1: Yeah. And and what's interesting, so, you know, I, I had had a conversation with Glenn Greenberg back in the day and he had mentioned to me, and I'm sure he's mentioned this in other interviews, that, you know, one of his big regrets in working on this story was that he never identified who that mystery goblin was and, that, and he wanted to. I mean, you know, here we go. It's another mystery character. And Greenberg's idea was that he was going to have Phil uh, Urich be... The Goblin. And I, I, I just I find that personally interesting because, you know, fast forward to the Dan Slott big time era and Phil Yurick, of course, is the char- Is you know, well, in addition to being um, Ben Yurik's nephew, he is the character who kills who we think is Roger Kingsley at the time, but it's actually Daniel Kingsley and assumes the mantle of the Hobgoblin during the big big time era. So that that's it's kind of a weird full circle of these characters here.
0: I mean, hey, if you're if you're a character in a Spider-Man book, if you live long enough, you'll see yourself become the Hobgoblin. <laughs> I, mean, I think that's the ultimate path. You know, it's we didn't get Betty Brandt as the Hobgoblin, but Lord knows we go long enough, we would get there. Although ultimately, this character, this alternate Green Goblin, ended up being the Green Goblin Construct, which is a whole other bag of worms. Mark, do you remember the Green Goblin construct?
1: No, you're gonna have to refresh my memory on this one, Dan. Uh, this I won't go too. Extra deep 90s-ish. Into it.
0: <laughs> it, yeah, it's like a Green Goblin clone. Is the best way to really put it that like Norman had created to pull off things like this and it ultimately like ends up melting down it's like a whole other thing you know what guys this is all to say look forward to our 90s coverage where everyone is confused while talking about comics
1: you know, I'm looking forward to our '90s coverage, Dan, because you'll be sleep deprived with a child, and we're going to be talking about some insane stuff. So, uh, including the Goblin construct. Clearly, what I also found kind of funny about the end of Goblins at the Gate is, you know, we 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 initially kind of end this story thinking that Norman is out is is on top. You know, Kingsley is kind of, you know, basically, you know, Osborne assumes his his uh, business interest or however you want to word it. But actually, Kingsley kind of outsmarts Norman, steals some money from a Swiss bank account from him and and is off in a in a on an island in the Caribbean by himself, kind of living the high life and contemplating the need to ever be the hobgoblin again. And we never heard from him again. Right. (laughs) I mean, for
0: a long time, that was true. Like o- almost twenty years, I would say. Is that is that right? Twenty years, just about.
1: Yeah, I mean, big time, right? That was when he was brought
0: back. Yeah, uh, I think that's the first time, and he was exactly where we left him on that beach, drinking some uh, margaritas or whatever it was. I mean, Mark, what are your thoughts on Goblin t- at the gate? I mean, do you agree with me largely?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 nothing revelatory. I mean, especially in in light of. The quality that was hobgoblin lives but like I, I you know i think given where the books were at the time and kind of you know in as you alluded to earlier i mean like you know this was the the the, the spider office was kind of in a spot in terms of like you know filling the gaps and stuff like that so like i think for like a a random fill in the gap story. It's fun, you know. Like there's nothing. There's there's no harm being done here, and I think that it kind of. I I, I do appreciate that. It does kind of put a bow on the Kingsley saga on Spider Man, and it also gives you that kind of Green Goblin Hobgoblin story, although it's not as epic as you would have hoped it would be.
0: And and yeah, so like Kingsley is is gone. I mean we'll talk about some of the more modern stuff with him, but it is a little shocking to me that they let this character sit for so long. You know, I mean, they had really successfully brought him back and, and wrapped all that up and then, you know, kind of put him out to pasture. I mean, I can't really think of many other villains that like were treated in this way, but maybe that was just it. The hobgoblin is, a thorn you just don't want to uh, prick, or uh, however you want to put it.
1: Do we want to talk a little bit about where the character is today, uh, just before we kind of get into the ultimate legacy of the character?
0: Sure. Yeah, that sounds great.
1: Yeah. So I mean, you know, as as we kind of alluded to earlier, you know, Kingsley's, you know, when I. Today, today, you know, like, you know, in, in in 2021 terms, Kingsley is kind of, you know, his his main shtick is he's selling like villainous IPs to loser bad guys to kind of, you know, to kind of make a profit. And, you know, that's coming on the heels of in the Axis storyline. Remember that thing, Dan? Yeah, uh, Ke- Kevin Shinnick. A, yeah, Kevin Shinnick had a, he had like a brief little like, you know, her- heroic or, or anti-hero turn where he was actually selling good good guy properties to people (laughs) um but that i mean it, it, it i mean that never really got explored all that much but like you know like pretty much if you see someone out there wearing the grizzly costume or uh mind worm or 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 any of those guys that we had talked about from the bronze age their ip is is owned by kingsley and he's selling them off course kind of leading up to that point kingsley was was used a bunch during the dance slot era um, although with controversial results right
0: you know he's introduced in a way like we see him kind of going into one of the old green goblin layers to get some tech and you know first time we'd seen him in a very long time and he's killed off by phil urich almost immediately And I think a lot of people were really upset, like, hey, like, we love this character. How dare you kill him off, you know, in such a perfunctory way, right? Like, the Hobgoblin is a beloved villain, despite his kind of lack of presence in the books. And, you know, Slot meant to kill Roderick Kingsley, but in responding to the kind of backlash, he was approached with, I forget who, who threw the idea at him, that like, wait a minute, you have a perfect backdoor to this. It wasn't Roderick Kingsley. It was Daniel Kingsley, further again, brainwashed by the Hobgoblin to be doing this. Now, the the one thing that doesn't hold up is that, that, you know, to get into the goblin lair, the Hobgoblin, like, tears down the iron door. And Daniel Kingsley, as far as we know, never got the goblin serum. So I think, I can't, I can't remember specifically if Slot wrote in, like, some reason for that that he was able to do it. But like, as far as I'm concerned, I don't care. I think it was a clever way out, like to like trick people again. And I think that that kind of thing is now like essential part of the Hobgoblin character is the mistaken identities and that he'll never go away. And I, I appreciated it. Like, even if it wasn't his intent, how we got to the ultimate place we did, I thought was really
1: fun. (laughs) I think it's for better or for worse at this point, but yeah, I I, I agree. And then of course, Nick Spencer in his ultimate "I must fix" uh, mentality, we we actually get we finally get the answer to that that question about Ned Leeds as Hobgoblin being offed so easily by the foreigner. <laughs> well, actually, it was more it was the motivation for Spencer's. Turn with Leeds was because he got punched out by Flash, or was it the Foreigner? I'm trying to remember what. I
0: think it's more like how did Ned Leeds survive all of that? So like we saw Ned Leeds have his throat slit, but Spencer had his throat heal because he actually took the hot the Goblin serum, I think, so that he could fight Flash again. Yeah, because he was
1: embarrassed that he got punched out by Flash. So it was like, you know, I, I and, and because he was brainwashed into thinking he was the Hobgoblin, he needed to take the serum to, to fight back against Flash. I mean, you know, whatever. I it, We'll see how much of this stuff in the long run from Spencer's run is is still kind of honored as continuity. But like, you know, not not to keep crapping on Spencer's run, but like this kind of reminded me of yet another instance of like. Nick Spencer trying to fix something that nobody was asking him to fix <laughs> at this point. I mean, yeah, Ned leads, Ned leads as a turn as the hobgoblin was, was dead and buried in my burn. And it's kind of complicates it and muddies it a little bit in my opinion. So
0: I will admit, I love Roderick Kingsley as the costumer of, of villains. I think that's a perfect place for the character to have landed I mean, would I like to see him flying around town as the Hobgoblin again? Yeah, but, like, he was always an enterprising, you know, corporate businessman guy. And he's also a fashion designer. I just think it's a perfect melding of the two worlds. And it fits totally with the character. And uh, I wish more was done with it. But I also think that enough people know about it that, like, they've commented here and there, like, when someone gets unmasked and they're not the Grizzlies original... Secret identity, which I can't tell you off the tip of my tongue who the grizzly is. I, I do think at least they're honoring it as as much as I would love the character to have more kind of prominence in Spider-Man's rogue gallery.
1: If memory serves me, I mean, we're going way back in the in the time machine here, Dan. But like I remember we were, there was an issue of Superior Spider-Man that involved Roderick Kingsley and kind of more of this like, you know, body doubles and brainwashing and stuff. And I. I I remember you saying at the time, like, oh, I don't know, like if we keep doing this as like the out for this character, it does cheapen it over time. So like, do you, do you feel that, uh, you know, at this point? I mean, or, or do you feel like there's still legs to having the character constantly, you know, kind of get a one up on somebody because it's like, well, no, it's a double or it's someone I brainwashed or whatever. You know what I mean? Like there always seems to be. And it's kind of like the Jackal at this point. Like, you know, like how many different, you know, uh, you know, groundskeepers, Scooby-Doo style are you going to unmask and have it be somebody else when it comes to the Hobgoblin and Roderick Kingsley?
0: <laughs> well, you took the words right out of my mouth, which is like, I'm OK with it so long as we don't get to the point of it being the Jackal. I mean, I do think it's humorous now that like they've leaned so far into it with the Jackal that there are hundreds of. Of Professor Warren's You know And and, and that is like Like a funny acknowledgement That it's gotten really silly I don't want the Hobgoblin To get to that point I thought the Daniel switcheroo In the Dan Slot run Was really clever But I think beyond that I'm kind of like With the death of Daniel I'm kind of ready for the death Of this alternate identity thing Existing And I thought that we moved past that I don't remember the specifics of the Superior Spider-Man issue, although I, I recognize that you're right, that did happen and I do recall faintly saying something like that. It might just come down to execution, issue to issue for me. I mean, like, I would love to see Roderick back. I I do think if you're gonna play cheekily off of it and it's a smartly crafted twist of the knife, sure, I'm okay with the, all, the multiple personalities or multiple stand-ins thing. Especially now that he's got this company that can dress up people. There's always a smart way to do it, I think. But you're right. It's not the first thing I would lean into if I was depicting the Hobgoblin.
1: You have made it no secret on this show. I mean, I will admit my part of my fascination with the Hobgoblin. I mean, you know, I, I am a former newspaper reporter, journalist, and I I love the behind the scenes drama. I, I think for me the behind-the-scenes drama of this character trumps even my actual opinions of the character itself. And I know that's a controversial thought, but that's that's where I'm at. You know, you, you seem to be a legitimate fan of the character first. So, you know, we've done three episodes about this character now that have kind of gotten into the nitty-gritty of some editorial drama and creator drama. Does this cheapen that fandom you have for Hobgoblin or does it even, does it make you more emboldened in your, in your fandom?
0: I can acknowledge when something is like a mess and you said as much like the second chapter of this that we kind of covered last episode is a a mess. I think left at that point, my fandom for the Hobgoblin probably would have dried up. And again, I can only approach this fandom as somebody who can, read all these things in a weekend if I really wanted to, rather than having to like suffer through years of this, you know, like what I, I, I have to ask myself, would I love Kindred if I could read it in a weekend? I don't think so because I don't think it's well-written. <laughs> I'm like, where are you going with this Dad? <laughs> <laughs> no, Mark, I would never betray you like that. But So like, you know, I, I'm looking back on this, like hindsight is 2020 20, so to speak, but like, for me, that middle chapter is actually kind of what I love about the character, but only because of what was done in Hobgoblin Lives. Like, I really think that Roger Stern pulled off a miracle with Hobgoblin Lives and makes all of that stuff look brilliant in hindsight. And, you know, the thing I wanted to push back on earlier that I said I would push back on eventually is like, to me, going from the beginning of the Roger Stern run with the Hobgoblin straight into Hobgoblin lives would have been great and a nice tight story. But like, there's a sort of like, at least for me as a fan of the character, there's a sort of like meta character arc, which I kind of talked about last episode, which is like, there's a really strong beginning and like any kind of character story, it gets messy in the middle and then it all kind of comes together in the end. And I kind of feel that with the Hobgoblin, which is like, the the messy middle is kind of the fun of it and that the end is so perfect. I mean, it's whatever. It's leave, leave them with their mouths open in the end or whatever, wowed in the end. And I think this pulls it off. As such, like I don't think there's any villain in Spider-Man's history that has given me quite the same ride as the Hobgoblin has. He's a real threat and he's really unusual and he's not treated with kids' gloves. He's just legitimately heartless and murderous and I I don't know. I just think he's such a great villain for Spider-Man. And he's the one like villain that we kind of see so much of the connection and drama between the characters build up over such a long period of time. Like I can only imagine Venom if Eddie Brock was given this kind of treatment uh, that I would have that kind of attachment to it. But yeah, I don't know. And I just love the design of the character and and all of that is derivative of other characters. I'll admit, but there's just something about him that I connect to, and and it's probably part of it is the messy like nerdiness of like what you were describing, which is like I love the behind the scenes stuff too, and that makes it almost like a more personal for me because like not many people know about all that stuff, which is why I'm getting into fights with. Forty year olds in, in comic book stores.
1: Can you but, stop calling um, out as forty year olds? They're just idiots. <laughs> I am forty and I am not fighting with you. So let's All let's, you let's, Gen Xers wanna come uh, at me. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, I don't know. Is that convincing at all? I, mean, I, I, I see what you're saying. I think what I, the point I was trying to make, I mean, you're right. I mean, in retrospect, no. I mean, if 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 Stern kind of ended his run with Hobgoblin Lives, it would have just been kind of like, oh, okay. But, like, I, I do feel like this storyline and, frankly, like what we experienced on ASM over the last couple of years, I mean, like, I, I kind of just want – Creators to take a moment about these like very long running mystery arcs because I just feel like the longer you 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 drag these things out, the more there is potential for it to kind of go off the rails a little bit. And I I, I do think there is something to be said when you look at Hobgoblin lives. I mean, for all of this drama and and behind the scenes betrayal and and chicanery, like what they actually did here with this story was write a very tight three-part storyline that just explains it all and it's very effective and it's very well done and and like there's a mystery and then the mystery is solved and we all moved on with our lives and like i think like you you if you're going to do a, i guess my my point is if you're going to do a mystery arc in Spider-Man or any comics, but, you know, we're obviously Spider-Man focused is like, you know, you, I think you kind of need to look at how Goblin lives is like your end game. You know, like this is like at some point you need to have all the pieces in place to sum this all up and, and clear this all up as effectively as Stern does in this series, because otherwise you, you're just going to piss people off <laughs> And kind of how we were really ticked off by how. The Spencer run ended. Like, let's just, you know, like you just need something kind of tight but not rushed, and and get it out there and and you know, like think about think about this as your end game when you're starting something. I guess that's the point I'm trying to make at the end of the day.
0: I just love that like Stern made it. There's not a single dangling thread. Yeah. At the end of this, it that's is what I mean. All yeah. Closed up. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Like, you could just, you you know, yes, we got Goblins of the Gate, and yes, we got future stories. And Stern, when I interviewed him for that CBR story I did back in the day, he said to me, you know, I could always come up with another Kingsley story. And I'm sure he can, you know? Like, it's not, you know, there's never truly an end in comics, but if there was going to be an end... He wrote an end. (laughs) And I think there's there's something to be celebrated in that. Like It's very rare in comics to have a true end in a way where it feels like an end, but there's still possibility for more.
0: You know, people have used him since then. I think the use of him has been very up and down. There are writers that I think don't understand the character at all, like Brian Michael Bendis. And there are writers that I think... Do really cool things with him. I think Dan Slott mostly did neat things with him. I mean, literally returning to that beach and and having him, you know, come back, you know, from Mexico out of retirement. And, you know, I thought that was cool. You know, um, I, I, I think as much as I would love to see him, a sparing use of the Hobgoblin is something I would love in, in Spider-Man comics. And if we never see him again, you know, I've got these great stories to fall back on. And you know what's great about an ending, Mark? We can end our conversation about the Hobgoblin here. Like we did it all in one fell swoop. We got the Hobgoblin out of our system. You know, no one will ever ask us about the Hobgoblin again. That's probably not true because we love the Hobgoblin, but as of to say, we will uh, never talk <laughs> about him again. Right. Dan? <laughs> That's it. Right. Memory hole, Roger Kingsley. It, there we it, go. All it, it's right. All here, everybody. I all mean, right. We, we do hope that you guys all felt like we did justice to the Hobgoblin saga <laughs> over these past three episodes.
1: I, I mean, I hope so, Dan. So, Dan, take take us take us to the Caribbean, Dan. <laughs>
0: yeah, right. So, mm-hmm. if, uh, if you find this show entertaining and valuable, I mean, I, like I said, I, I hope you did. You know, one of the things that you can consider doing is supporting us. That might just mean recommending Amazing Spider Talk to a friend. I mean, recently. Spotify just opened up reviews and we don't have any reviews on Spotify. So go in there and give us five stars, everybody, if you really love us. But if you really, really love us and you want more of what we do and you want us to keep going, you know, why not consider becoming a member on our Patreon?
1: Yeah, we can only bring you this content with the support of our Patreon members, and we owe the show's success to every single one of them, and we constantly make exclusive content for our members. This week, Patreon members will hear Dan and I talk about Amazing Spider-Man number 84.
0: Yeah, so why not take that $3.99, the price of a new comic, and put it towards a month's subscription to support the show and start receiving our Patreon content? Like Mark said, that way you'll hear our Patreon-exclusive review podcast on every new issue of Amazing Spider-Man the same week they come out, instead of waiting for them to arrive on our public podcasting three feed three months later when they're on Marvel Unlimited. If you're someone that goes to the comic book store and buys Amazing Spider-Man the week they come out, the Patreon is where you want to
1: be. Yeah, if you contribute $10 a month, Dan, you gain access to... Uh, You gain access to exclusive artwork from famous Spider-Man artists commissioned exclusively for our members. Plus every episode we release a new episode specific desktop background created for us by artist Nick Cagnetti for our patrons to enjoy. Yeah,
0: but with like Omicron spreading around the globe and everybody kind of living in a bit of panic, we know it's a hard time for everybody. So don't support us if it's gonna cause you any hardship. You can just listen and share the show with your friends. But again, if you do have the means, please join our Patreon and support the continued existence of our show. You can do so by following a link in the description of this episode. And and that goes to say, like, thank you to everybody who already makes this show possible. Mark and I don't profit off of our Patreon. It all goes back into the show. And I'll admit it's often tight because it does take a lot to keep this going. So we appreciate everybody who helps us out uh, with the show.
1: But it is that time, unfortunately, time for these good things to come to an end. So we want to say thank you to you, the listeners and viewers, for tuning into this episode of The Amazing Spider Talk.
0: Yeah, as always, this episode was edited by Rick Coast. Our artwork comes handcrafted by some of the artists we mentioned today. Ron Friends, Sal Busema, Ray Sumser, and Nick Cagnetti. And our theme songs were produced by our good friends Ryland Bojack and spider Madge. Plus, our intro animation and musical stinger comes from our friend Josh Sutton from the YouTube show Panels to Pixels.
1: Dan, this last three episodes were a lot of fun. We're talking about our favorite character here, the Hobgoblin. I mean, do we have anything else to be talking about in our next episode or, or what?
0: <laughs> yeah, we're going to finish up the season with an episode that I'm really excited about because, Mark, it's one of your favorites, and I can't wait because we've not really, you and I, even just personally, have never really talked about this in any great detail. It's Marvel superheroes Secret Wars. It's the story that will bridge us into our next season with Ron Friends and Tom DeFalco's run
1: on the character. Mark, Secret Wars, are you excited? Oh my goodness. I mean, like this is this is, Secret Wars is the book that kind of turned me in on to Marvel as a kid. I, I I am admittedly one of those kids that let, you know, bought action figures and saw all these toys and then saw the comics and read the comics and then all of a sudden was like I love all these characters, but especially that Spider-Man guy. And the rest is history. <laughs> Are you going
0: to break out those old action figures? You I still mean, have those things? I certainly do, Dan. I I,
1: I mean, <laughs> I, I still have the figures. But the, the what I don't have anymore, and I had it, was like Doom's Castle. I, I had it all, Dan. Like this. Was oh like, no! I, I I I mean, like if you went back to my parents' house, I mean, you know. At one point in time, you would have found the entire Secret Wars cadre of of figures, you know, like Jim Shooter had his hooks in me all the way, man. (laughs) Well,
0: I'm expecting some special guests on the next show then.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I will do my best to get everyone out there. (laughs) That would be awesome.
0: Uh, All right. Well, so, hey, if you're tuning in live, don't forget, as soon as the show ends Our conversation will continue with our audience on YouTube. And if you missed out on Amazing Spider Talk Live, this time we'll be back soon on YouTube. So go there and subscribe and click on the bell to stay on top of all the new live recordings that we'll be doing in the future. But, Mark, until next time, we have to leave everyone with our motto, the very thing that forms the background of our show. So, Mark, until I put on a toupee and pretend to be you... What's our motto?
1: But you're not my twin, Dan. We just look a I'm not. A lot I alike. want to be clear. Yes, you're not a twin. But, you know, what a twin or not a twin would say still, our motto, which is, with great podcasts, there must also come the amazing Spider-Talk. Don't,
0: don't miss the next Instance.